worship team. We are going to dismiss children for Children's Church. That's ages four through first grade. And you can head out this north door and follow Mrs. Erickson. All right. As the kids are heading out, I just want to give one more plug for tonight's Thanksgiving service. And that's what it is. It's a it's not about the meal. We're going to have a meal together, but it's really about giving thanks to God. And there really is something that does the soul good when you have an opportunity to give thanks and to be thankful. And it's very encouraging also to hear what God is doing in, in people's lives. There's an opportunity, three opportunities to share just briefly about something you're thankful for. And it could be just a small thing or it could be, you know, an awesome thing, but whatever it is, to be thankful, it really does a, a, the soul good and it will encourage you to be a part of that. So I want to encourage you to be, be there. If you haven't thought about being there, please be here. And even if you're late, you know, come at six when the, when the, the Thanksgiving starts. So. <clears throat> what if? What if? It's a major theme for a lot of Hollywood movies, right? Back to the future. What if I could go back in time and change something? Or meet the Robinsons where someone went back to try and change the, the past of a slight that he had. Or then there's the classic 1946 movie, It's a Wonderful Life where a man named George Bailey, who's tried to do nothing but give good to a town, is at a point where he's at financial ruin, and he is saying, I wish I had never been born. Well, an angel, second class, Clarence, is sent down to help him. And for a brief moment, he, he gives him his wish. He lets him see what life would be like if he were never born. And the outcome is not good. His brother Harry, who he saved at age 12, falling through frozen ice, drowns. And consequently, he doesn't grow up to become a soldier and save the men in his platoon in World War II. All those men perish. His employer, Mr. Gower, who's a pharmacist, who in a moment of being distraught and being a little bit intoxicated, makes a mistake and puts in a... a Puts in a, uh, in a, what's the word I'm looking for? Prescription, that's it. Hello. Puts in a prescription, something that is dangerous, could kill somebody. George catches him and stops him. But in this case, since he's not there to stop him, it goes on and, and he is put in jail for manslaughter. And as he returns to see his hometown, the town of Bedford Falls, it's now Potterville, a place of oppression. A place of despair because the powerful slumlord Potter has kind of taken over town and everyone has suffered it at his hand. And his own wife, Mary, never does marry and ends up living in poverty. Once George realizes the horrendous results, he begs to be allowed to return to his old life, even in light of pending financial ruin. But that's not the end of the story. What if? Similarly, Paul takes the church of Corinth down a trail of what if 
based on their own false belief. Asking the question, what if there is no resurrection? Where does that take us? That's what we'll be looking at in Paul's letter to the Corinthians today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and crack them open to chapter 15. And we'll be starting at verse 12, looking at a what if. So I'm going to pick it up at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only this life we have hope in Christ, we of all people are the most to be pitied. Let me pray for us and then we'll go back to God's word this morning. Lord, we're dealing with a very uh, serious topic. It's not a fantasy. It's not a movie. It's real life. Because each one of us is destined to die. And the real question is, do we have hope after this life? Yes, indeed we do, Lord. And it's in you. So I pray that you'd help us to see that hope today. You'd open the eyes of our hearts to that. And you'd give us confidence in that hope. That's in you, Lord Jesus, our risen Savior. So Lord, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen. Well, if you've been with us in our series through this letter to the, to the Corinthians, you know that the Corinthians are a church that wants to be thought of as very spiritual. They want to be spiritual. Unfortunately, they're shaped more by the Greek culture around them about what that spirituality meant than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul's trying to ground them back in what that means. So in the beginning of this chapter, verses 1-4, through four, Paul reminds them of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus Christ, which was preached to them by Paul himself. And so he says, picking it up at verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, but that he was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. And Paul continues on in this, these first 11 verses to tell them, that, look, this is not a myth. This is not a legend. It is historically true because there are living eyewitnesses. Peter, the 12 disciples, 500 plus witnesses. James, his half-brother who didn't even believe in him during his earthly ministry. The rest of the apostles, and then Paul, who was named Saul at the time. 
a hostile witness, an enemy. God reached down into his life and turned him around and made him his apostle, made him his sent one to take this good news. He changed his perspective that Jesus indeed was who he said he was because he has risen from the dead. Historically, all these men, most of them, met a painful death. But none of them would recant. No one would recant their proclamation that Jesus indeed has risen from the dead. But again, the Corinthians have some spiritual ideas and they run counter to the gospel that they have received, counter to that good news. And they have not thought through the implications of their worldly wisdom. And so he walks them down the pathway. Which is the reality, if there is no resurrection, from the dead. Let's just pick it up again at verse 12. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? Basically, Paul starts to say, what gives, guys? Look, the gospel... The message we gave you, part of it is that Jesus has risen from the dead. How can some of you say this, this didn't happen? Let's talk about this. Let's go where, let's go down there and find out what that means. Let's find out where this leads. How many of you remember geometry? If then statements. Remember? If you know, angle X is 90 degrees and angle Y is 45, then angle W is... Remember those? I didn't ask you to answer. <laughs> I just That's all I could remember, all right, folks? But this is what, this is what, this is what Paul's doing. He's kind of working these if-then statements. So he starts out with, in verse 12, excuse, verse 13, if there is no resurrection from the dead... Then Christ himself has not been raised. This guy you said that you have faith in, Jesus, the object of your faith, the one you're counting on, he's dead. He's not alive. He's in a grave. He's not raised. If there is no resurrection, Jesus is not raised. And if Christ is not raised, then guess what? Our preaching and your faith is useless. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It's a wrong belief. It's incorrect. It's of no help. There's no basis in the truth. Because there is no resurrection from the dead. Then, and I'm reversing it, then to if, then we are liars if the dead are not raised. Verse 15, more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. We've been deceiving you about the truth of God. Whether purposely or not purposely. But we've been deceiving you. We've been giving you false information. 
that's not true if the dead are not raised. And again, kind of reiterating in verse 16, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. The next verse, 17, and if Christ is not raised, then you are still in your sins. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Yeah, Christ did die on the cross. And maybe, supposedly it was for your sins, but there's no proof of power now. He's just in the grave. What's the difference of his life versus anyone else's life who's given themselves up for somebody else? The power is gone. Remember earlier that song we sang? What a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The power of the Lord Jesus Christ, of his name, is in the fact that he was raised from the dead. He is the one who conquers sin and death. There is no other. That is the power we're proclaiming. But if Jesus is not risen, there is no power. There is no forgiveness of sins. And you are still alienated from God by your sin. You're still his enemy. You're not a son. You're not a daughter. All that stuff we said earlier about you, it's not true. There's no reconciliation. You're strangers. And if Christ is not raised, then you, the dead, are dead in God. Verse 18. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. Enough time had gone, had taken place since they had first put their faith in Christ, and some of the church members in Corinth had died. And they're wondering, what's the end of this? Paul's saying, look, if the dead aren't raised, if Christ isn't raised, then these guys are lost. They're dead. There is no afterlife. They're not coming back. They're worm food right now. That's it. And we, who are here on earth, we're just waiting for the same demise, the same result. And we who put our faith, if we put our faith in Christ, then we are fools to be pitied. Verse 19. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Summation of all this. If the dead are not raised, Christ is not raised, our preaching is worthless, our faith is worthless, we are liars, we're still in our sin before God, unreconciled, unforgiven. Those who died before us are not coming back. We have no hope of an afterlife. And we who dared to believe in all this, we are profoundly deceived. We're fools. That's all we got going for you. Have a good day. That's where this trail of logic takes us. Paul, who had more invested in Christ than this whole church, he was willing to go there. Not because 
he was feeding into the despair, but because he's saying, this is where this takes you. This is where this kind of thinking ends. This is where the misunderstanding of this ends. And it is pointing out to the fact that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really is the cornerstone that points toward and fortifies the truth of the other claims of the Christian faith. It's the litmus test. If Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, everything else is false. Everything else falls. If Jesus Christ has not risen from the dead, then history, then life, then eternity is going nowhere. And again, Paul Paul's not buying into this despair. He's just showing where it leads to. So I just want to show you where this is going. And part of this is because, again, people in this church are somehow jettisoning this important part of the doctrine of the gospel. That Jesus lived the life we could not live. He died a death to pay a penalty we could not pay. And he conquered a foe in death we could not conquer. And because of that, it guarantees a life, a resurrected life. And as we saw earlier in this chapter, Paul points to eyewitnesses, more than 500. Christ is risen, and history is going somewhere. He's trying to correct them. So number two, he points out the ramifications of Christ's resurrection for the believer. Verses 20 through 23. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. See, Christ's resurrection is a guarantee for those of us who are in Christ. Jesus is the forerunner, if you will, the first fruits, the down payment. The down payment that says, look, if you put your faith in him, you'll be raised as well. Raised from the dead. Yes, we're still subject to the curse of death, Due to the nature we inherit from our forefather Adam, verse 22, for as in Adam all die, but those who put their faith in Christ escape this curse, and they're given eternal life in him, continue on, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, because Jesus was raised from the dead, if I put my faith in him, so shall I be raised from the dead. Our brother David was talking about some of the tragedy that happens in our world. The, the bad news that discourages us, right? And God has given us this life. And I, I'm, not, I'm not looking to despair that. But I'll tell you what, folks. If all of our hope is on this side of heaven, we've got our, we've got our, our eggs in the wrong basket. The hope of the gospel is that this is not all there is. That I can live my life without fear of being punished by someone evil because there's more than this. Because Jesus has 
died and raised from the dead, so will I be raised from the dead. I can live without fear because I don't need to fear the man who can take my life because Jesus still gives it to me. Jesus still gives it to me. That is the hope. And again, that doesn't mean there aren't good things on this side of heaven to invest in. That doesn't mean we can't, we can't enjoy it. That doesn't mean we can't give ourselves to help others. But it's not all the hope on this side of heaven. It also highlights the mystery and the necessity of the incarnation. That Jesus would put on flesh. Look at verse 21. For since through death, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. See, mankind again is in a quandary. He has rebelled against his maker. He separated himself from him because of his sin. And we're in a place, no matter how much we want to do good, we cannot save ourselves. That's the bad news of the gospel. That all sin and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of that sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. None of us were able to live a sinless life to meet God's holy standard. And that's why Jesus, who was fully God, put on flesh and became fully man to pay the debt we couldn't pay. And to become fully man in order to be that fitting atoning sacrifice as a savior. Just quickly listen to what the author of Hebrews has to say about this. Chapter 2 verse 17. For this reason, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. That he might make atonement for the sins of all people. In essence, Jesus is the second Adam, where Adam failed. Jesus succeeded and conquered death because he was fully God and fully man. And that's why he's worthy of being our Savior, if you will. In light of this, there's also a scope and sequence to the resurrection. Verse 23. But each in turn... Christ, the first fruits, who's already been raised and sits at the right hand of God, then when he comes, when he returns, those who belong to him. So it starts, it starts with Jesus, who's been raised, okay? And then when he comes back, those who have fallen asleep in Christ will be raised also when Jesus returns. First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, saying the same things, also a letter written by Paul. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still living, still alive, are left and caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be together with the Lord forever. You see, no one knows that day. No one knows the hour when Jesus is going to return. 
In fact, Jesus himself is said, it's, it's going to be like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect it. But it will be the beginning of the end. And the resurrection of the dead ushers in God's rule. It ushers in God's rule. Verse 24. Then the end will come. And when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. You see, when Jesus returns and he resurrects all those who are in Christ, then he's going to start making all the things that are out of alignment with his will, he's going to bring it into his submission. He's going to destroy all power and authority and dominion. Those things that are out of sync with what he has done. You see, God is sovereign. But if we look around, if we look around at this earth, not everything is submitting to the will of Christ, is it? God is allowing it. But when he returns, it'll be enough. And now you will be brought into submission by God's Christ. All power and authority will be under his submission. And it won't be a problem for any of us who have submitted to Christ, but it will be a problem for those who are resisting, who have decided to do their own thing, who have decided to be their own gods, and they will be like prisoners of war. For it says, Verse 25, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy of all to be destroyed is death itself, which Christ has already begun to defeat, having been raised from the dead. But there's an interesting exchange between God the Father and God the Son in this passage, isn't there? You see, the Father... God the Father has put everything under his feet, it says in verse 27. That is God the Son. That is Jesus Christ. This comes out of Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at my feet. And he'll bring all authority under the authority of the Son. But what's interesting is after the Son has all those things under him, he in turn will turn around and submit all things to the Father, including himself. Verse 28, And when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. You see, in the economy of the Godhead, Jesus was sent to bring all things back to God. To start reversing the process of what happened in the garden. Of the rebellion of mankind and all of nature following that. Jesus came to reconcile that. Bring all those things back to God. 
And at the end, ultimately he does so. Whether it's submitting to his gospel and his grace, or is having to submit to his awesome power, because he is still God. But then Jesus turns around in the economy of the Godhead, God the Father with whom Jesus says, I and the Father are one, and he turns it all over to God the Father. In order, in order that God may be all in all. God the Father has, at the completion of time, all those things will be back in right relationship to God the Father. It's a restoration act. Here's my question. If Jesus does return today, where will he find us? Will he find us in submission to him as a gracious Lord and Savior? Or will he find us as as rebels shaking our fists at him saying, I'm going to do my own thing. And I don't know where everyone's at in relation to Christ here today. But he is the one to whom all things will be in submission. And he graciously gives us life. I pray that you consider your response to Jesus who is the king. Are you resisting or are you submitting to the gospel that he wants to give you, the good news, the life he wants to give you in Christ? So at the end of this passage, I call this a recap of the reactions to the resurrection. Pick it up at verse 29. Now, if there is no resurrection... (laughs) What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized for them? As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as as surely as I boast about you in Christ our Lord, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat And drink, for tomorrow we die. (laughs) Again, Paul kind of goes one more time down the what-if pathway, right? Very pragmatic. And he talks first of all about the the, um, Corinthians being baptized for the dead in verses 28 and 29. I'm going to tell you right now, nobody knows what that is. Nobody knows what that is. We can speculate all we want. We can speculate all we want. Here's the thing. It's never mentioned any other place in Scripture. It's never a practice in church history. We have no idea what it is. We think it really might have been just unique to this congregation. And most likely it was people being baptized for someone who died that didn't have the chance to be baptized, hoping that they had expressed faith in Christ. We're not really sure. But here's the thing. This statement is more descriptive than prescriptive. Okay? This is just what was going on there. And Paul is trying to get to a bigger argument about the resurrection. Think, you know, what hope do you have in being baptized for the dead? If, if, if the dead are not raised... 
Why are you doing it? It's going nowhere. There's no, there's no effect to it. And then he points out his own personal experience of the physical hazards of the ministry. Verses 30 through 32. He says in verse 30, we endanger ourselves every hour. Verse 31, we face death every day. And verse 32, I fought wild beasts in Ephesus. That doesn't mean he was a lion tamer. What that means, he was, he was getting such opposition. It was like fighting wild animals. But he said, you know what? If, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus hasn't raised, why am I doing this? Why am I knocking myself out? End of the matter, the, the practical conclusion should be, hey, let's eat, let's drink, let's party. Let's take in all of life's pleasures because there's nothing more. Tomorrow we die. Tomorrow we're worm food. That's the logical conclusion. The logical conclusion if there is no resurrection. Again, he's warning the Corinthians, don't give up this vital part of the of doctrine of the gospel. This is the ground zero of the truth of whether Jesus is who he says he is or not. Earlier he said in, in chapter 2, look, this is the gospel you've received. You need to hold on to it or else it does you no good. It'll serve you no practical or eternal value. You're going to be lost. Again, he's trying to bring correction. And so he rebukes them in these last couple verses. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company creeps good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. Stop and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. This group, this contingency within the Corinthian church, who are denying the resurrection, they're having a morally detrimental influence on those in the church. Verse 33, bad company corrects good character. That's a great general maxim to live by in any situation. But it was particularly true in this church. And if you were with us through this whole series, you know that this church has been struggling with all sorts of sins, sexual immorality, getting drunk in the middle of the Lord's Supper. It just is bad. And especially you're denying the future of the resurrection and the reckoning that God's going to bring when he returns. It's easy to slip into living for the here and now, even if you do believe in the resurrection, right? We need to keep in mind that Jesus is coming back one day. We need to keep in mind that we can't be living for just self and self-promotion and, and self-pleasure. We can't live with a, an idea that the only authority that is out there is our own perspective and our own preferences. No. Jesus has risen from the dead and he is coming back. And it was affirmed by more than 500 witnesses. Again, Paul is looking to correct those who are ignorant of God because of this. 
Here's the question again. What is the what-if reality you are living in? Are you living within the what-if reality that there is no resurrection? That, you know, this is all there is and I can do whatever I want? And if there is no resurrection, you're right. You are right. But I have to tell you, history has set its face against it. There are actual witnesses of what Jesus did in rising from the dead. And has changed all of history. Just think about the effect that the resurrection had on the Roman world. It changed where history is going. Do you, have, do you happen to know that the, the idea of the hospital is a Christian idea? When the plague came to the city of Rome, all the pagans fled and the Christians stayed because they believed that people needed to have hear the gospel and have dignity even when they're dying. That's a Christian idea. You know, people giving of themselves for the sake of others is a Christian idea. Jesus says, if you want to find your life, you have to lose it for me and the gospel's sake, and then you'll find it. It's a reality that's based in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What reality are we living in? What, what if reality are we living in? One that has changed all of history. One that has changed many of our lives in this room. What if? What what if reality are you living in? I pray that it is in the reality that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead, is coming back one day, and will raise all of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, is something to be thankful for in this season of Thanksgiving. Let me pray for us, then I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and close us. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you have risen from the dead. Again, you appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to more than 5,500 witnesses, to James, to the other disciples, and to Paul, who was then Saul. And Lord, historically and, and logically, we, we trust in what you've done there, how you've revealed yourself. We also trust how you've changed lives and how you've changed all of history. The altruistic, many of the altruistic um, movements within our own society are, are Christian ideas because Jesus is alive, because Jesus loves people because that people have value and Jesus came and died for them. 
And Lord, if there's somebody who's doubting that today, I pray that you would open the eyes of their heart that they might see you for who you are. A powerful Savior who gives life and who's giving eternal life. Again, we thank you for the hope that we have and the courage that it gives us in this life and the destiny it gives us for eternity. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming for us, for seeking and saving the lost, and for giving us a glorious future. And we'll give you all the glory. And now as we wait for you, would you help us to keep in step with your Holy Spirit and live, live in the hope of the resurrection. And Lord Jesus, it's in your precious name I pray these things. Amen.